so today we celebrate the sanctity of human life. Now, I, I think I know what you expect me to say this morning, but this will not be a sermon about abortion. The Scriptures say something profound and powerful and convicting about human life that has implications for Roe v. Wade, but extends far beyond it. I'm not here to talk to you merely about abortion. I want to talk to you about humanity. I want to slowly and carefully walk with you through the Scriptures in order to help you understand just what it means to be human. And I want to show you that what you believe about humanity influences nearly every decision you make. While we read and while we talk, you should be thinking about abortion. But you should also be thinking about suicide, about mercy killings. You should think about the decisions we make in relation to one another. About racism, about cultural prejudice, about orphans and widows and adoption. But you should also think about you, how you spend your time, your resources, your attention. I want us to look into the Scriptures this morning and try and define the worth of the human life. Because if we understand the worth of this gift, we may be better equipped to decide what to do with it. I want everybody to turn to Mark 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's one tucked into the pew. I didn't do the research to find what page number. Sorry. So turn to Mark 12. Hold up your Bible when you got it. Okay. Almost everybody? Everybody? Okay. We're going to spend most of our time this morning working in this passage, and it's a passage that may be often misunderstood. So I want you to try and read this passage with new eyes. Okay? I want you to try and visualize the action of the story, and I want you to pay very close attention to the words that Jesus uses. Okay? Start from 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees. This is Jesus. And they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Okay, so where do we start? Remember that in your reading of Scripture, the questions that you bring to Scripture will determine your quality of time in Scripture. Does that make sense? When you read the Bible, the questions you bring to the Bible will determine the quality of time that you spend in the Bible. You have to ask questions of the text. And you have to take the time to find the answers to those questions within the text. 
So the first and perhaps the most important question we have to ask of this passage is what is Jesus talking about? In order to answer that question, I want, we have to take a step backward and look at the character of Jesus' ministry. I want you to think about Jesus' instruction. Jesus' response to people and to questions. Think about Jesus with Nicodemus or Jesus with the Samaritan woman. People come to Jesus and ask Jesus questions about here and now. Questions about politics and sectarian disputes. Questions about water. Questions about food. And how does Jesus respond? Living water. New birth. Kingdom of heaven. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Jesus pierces through the question. Always. It's just what he does. He always sees motives and he always sees hearts and he will never be distracted from his mission. You want bread? Consume my flesh. You want water? Come get living water. You want to walk again? Your sins are forgiven. These are the type of answers that Jesus gives. So is this passage about taxes? I mean, the question is about taxes. But is the answer about taxes? Look again at this story. What does Jesus do as soon as they ask him the question? For a coin. He asked for a coin. He says, give me a coin. Bring me a coin. Now, as far as I can tell, there are only two reasons why Jesus might ask for a coin. One, Jesus, the king of the universe, has forgotten what a coin looks like. And because he wasn't sure how to answer the question, he suspects that somewhere on that coin might be a clue. He needed to reference the coin for his own purposes. Maybe he was stumped. Maybe he was buying time. Or two, Jesus, the king of the universe, is piercing through the question. And he's shining a bright light on the hearts of men. He has asked for a coin to make a point. To highlight something so patently obvious that only a blind sinner could miss the significance. He's teaching. He asks for a coin to look at because the question is fundamentally related to the coin itself. And he's implying, I think, that these men whose pockets and purses clink with coins like this one every single day need only open their eyes to a staggering truth that has been clearly communicated by the grace of God to callous rebels from day one. So Jesus asks for a coin on purpose. Jesus is asked a simple question about physical things, politics, and personal property. Should I give some of my money to Caesar? It's mine. It's not his. But he's asked for some of my money. And I don't want to give it to him. Should I give it to him? May I keep it? Is it lawful to keep it? And Jesus, who could have just said yes or no, asks for a coin. So I want to show you the coin. Okay? Just like the coin that Jesus asked for. I want you to see what he's seeing and what he's showing the crowd because it's significant. This is a Roman denarius. This is a piece of pressed silver that operated as Roman currency. Now, 
Okay, the silver that's used for this coin is worth less than half of the denarius itself. So just like our money, just like our currency, the denarius was symbolic of wealth. It was symbolic of a certain amount of stuff. In this case, the denarius symbolized one day's wages in the Roman military, enough to buy some wine, some bread, some meat. And also like our currency, this coin, this denarius... The worth of it was entirely dependent on the Roman Empire. They could, and indeed they did on multiple occasions, just decide that certain coins were worth nothing. How could they do that? How how could they simply decide on a whim that the denarius meant nothing? Roman currency is remarkable for one striking feature. The image of Caesar... I don't know which Caesar that is, but that's one of them, I promise. The coins that were held, distributed, and traded in every region of the Roman Empire were pressed with the image of the emperor. Why? To proclaim over every exchange, over every loan, over every market transaction, this is your king. This coin belongs to him. He created it. He stamped his image upon it. So when he asks for it back, you give it back. It's his. It's not yours. You may count your coins and you may rejoice over your wealth. But at the end of the day, your stuff is not your stuff. Caesar's image is pressed on that coin because that coin belongs to Caesar. And then Christ looks up and he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And give to God what belongs to God. And the people marveled. For years, this answer baffled me. This is a turn that I didn't expect. The question was about taxes. And the first half of Jesus' answer is about taxes. But why include that last sentence? What have taxes to do with giving to God? This, I think, is where the passage can be misunderstood. Some readers have approached this passage and think that Jesus is giving a nuanced answer to the question about taxes. It's as if Jesus is saying, give to your government everything you owe to your government, except in those cases where you're asked to give something or do something which undermines your obedience to God. In those cases, God's authority trumps government authority. In other words, submit to your authority unless that authority contradicts the ultimate authority, God. Now, I think that this is a valid implication of Jesus' words. But I don't think that this is what Jesus means. Do you know why? Because the people marveled. They were amazed at His answer. So these people are Jews. They are citizens of Roman-occupied Palestine. They've been in a state of either rebellion or uncomfortable submission to the Roman Empire for over 200 years. And the Jewish people are politically divided. Okay, Some Jews welcome Rome, learn Greek, seek Roman citizenship, embrace the stability of the Roman Empire. Some Jews hate Rome, actively rebel against Roman dictatorship. Most Jews are non-activists, having grown accustomed to Roman occupation. But this conversation, the conversation about taxes, about tributes and allegiance, 
about God's sovereignty over Roman occupation had to have been at the forefront of community dialogue for centuries. Jesus' answer, if this was merely political theology, if it merely consisted of a submission to a hierarchy of authorities, was not new. It was not unique. Jesus' answer, if Jesus' answer was merely political, the people would not have been blown away. So I think that Jesus is saying something profound. And I think that's why the people marveled. Look back at the coin. How did Jesus know that that coin belonged to Caesar? Whose image is on that coin? Caesar's image. So Jesus says that the people, as soon as they see Jesus' image on that coin, should know to give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. Because it bears his image, it belongs to him. You should see that image and think, that's Caesar's coin. So what bears the image of God? We need to be Bible readers. Bible readers soak in the scriptures. Bible readers know the stories of Adam, Abraham, Moses, Gideon, David, Elijah like the back of their hands. Bible readers see patterns emerge as the scripture unfolds. And Bible readers pick up on Jesus' hints. Jesus' generation is a generation of Bible readers. Second temple period, Jews were soaked in the scriptures. It was a different world. The entire social structure revolved around the scriptures. And at the pinnacle of social and political hierarchy stood the Bible experts, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Many of Jesus' rabbinical peers had the Pentateuch memorized word for word. To memorize the text of Scripture was a virtue not only among the theological elite, but also among the masses of Jesus' contemporaries. And when we read Jesus' instruction, we find that his words are riddled with illusion. When Jesus teaches, he teaches with the shadows of Jacob, Isaac, and Joseph. He teaches with the shadows of the flood, shadows of the Red Sea. He whispers into your memory and forces you to recall ancient sacred images. Every word Jesus uses is chosen carefully. So when you read the words of Jesus, you should hunt for these illusions. And when you see the crowds marvel, when the crowd is hushed, when they hear his answer, it's a clue to stop and reread. Christ has just tickled the memories of Bible readers. Just so you know, I do not count myself among Bible readers. I'm heavily dependent on notes and cross-references. This is what happened as soon as Jesus asked, whose likeness is this? Likeness, they think. Where have I heard that word? Likeness. Give to God what belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. What is he talking about? Likeness. And all of a sudden, in a moment, the creation narrative, the story of the beginning of all things that was told as a bedtime story to every Jewish child in Palestine for centuries, rushed into the memory of every member of that crowd. And like clockwork, the words of Genesis 1 scroll through their minds. Then God said, let us make man in our image 
after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God set man and woman over His creation as stewards and He walked alongside them in love and peace. God fashioned them from the dust. He condescended to love and care for them. God established a unique relationship with man as His possession, steward over all creation. But man traded Creator for created things. The image of God was a stamp of possession, of stewardship. The image of God meant that man was uniquely equipped under God to steward God's creation for God's glory. Yet man traded the glory of God for created things. And we see this play out over and over again in the Scriptures. God fashioned Adam out of the dust and set him as steward over the garden. Yet Adam eats the forbidden fruit, is naked and ashamed, and his children are cursed forever. God rescued Noah and set him upon a renewed earth. Noah drinks of the fruit of the vine, is drunk, naked and ashamed, and his children are cursed forever. God chose the people of Israel as a people of His own possession, stewards over the promised land. His people turn away from God to idols, are naked before their enemies, and their children are exiled from God's presence. And God sets leaders over the exiled people of Israel, God's vineyard. The leaders of Israel reject their true master and refuse to lead the people to reconciliation. Okay, so I want you to look up at the beginning of the chapter. Look to verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent to his servant. He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent them to him. He sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now I wanted to read this parable because I want you to understand the full force of Jesus' words. Jesus is not merely taking advantage of a teachable moment. Jesus' answer to this question about taxes was not given in a vacuum. It's not as if Jesus said, it's funny you mentioned taxes. That reminds me of this general truth that you might find helpful. No. Jesus' answer has everything to do with this parable. Jesus turns to the leaders of Israel with fire in His eyes and He says, in every era of your people's history, from the outset you have refused to recognize that you were created in the image of God. You were created as stewards of His property. You were fashioned for His purposes, for His glory. You are not your own. You are God's. Give to God the things that are God's. 
Jesus looks to these leaders of Israel, to the Pharisees and the Herodians who refuse to lead the people to reconciliation with God. And he holds up a coin and he says to them, give to Caesar that which bears Caesar's image. Give to God that which bears God's image. You see, after a lifetime of refusal to give tribute to their true king, these men had, had the audacity to ask whether they ought to give tribute to Caesar. Your true king has been graciously seeking reconciliation with his people for millennia. And you're asking whether you ought to give tribute to a corrupt dictator whose armies ransacked your land, ravaged your families, and torched your possessions. Give tribute to God. By grace alone He has given life and purpose and opportunity for reconciliation and hope and love. You bear His image. You are His servant. Turn your attention from created things to Creator. Stop worrying about your stuff and start worrying about your soul. You, Redeemer Church, bear God's image. And that means something. It means that you are not your own. You belong to God. And you are a steward of His possessions. It means that your stuff is not your stuff. That you are merely a steward over your work and your money and your home and your children. It means that your life has purpose. It means that you'll be held accountable. And if you're anything like me, if you're anything like these men standing before Jesus with the coin, you're twice more concerned about your stuff than you are about your Creator. Listen, God is jealous for His image bearers. Look, our tendency when we read passages like this is to think of rebellion nationally and historically. When we read this text, we think about ancient Israel, and rightfully so. This passage is a parable about Israel's devotion to created things and their rejection of Creator. God chose Israel and He led them powerfully and lovingly through the wilderness. He placed them in a land flowing with milk and honey. He made a good place for His people and He set them in the promised land as stewards of His possession. You might say that He set them in the promised land as stewards over their own hearts. But Israel turned away from God and they devoted themselves to lusts of the flesh. They turned away from the glory of God and worshipped idols. They preferred created things over their Creator. And even though as a jealous husband, God rescued them and sought their hearts over and over again, even though He sent prophet after prophet to caution their destruction and to proclaim that true hope and true provision may only be found when they return to their husband of their youth, they rejected God and His messengers. So Christ's words are about Israel, but they aren't only about Israel. Listen, Paul says that the stories about Israel, about the lost law and the corrupt kings and the exiled peoples, were written as an example for the church. These things have been written for your benefit. The nation of Israel is a shadow of the church. So when you read the Old Testament, you need to be thinking about your life, about your faith, When you read about Israel, you're reading about you. Their faithlessness is a picture of your faithlessness. 
Their idolatry is a picture of your idolatry. Look, just like Israel suffered under the bondage of slavery, you suffered under the bondage of slavery to sin. Just as the people painted their thresholds with the blood of an innocent lamb, you were delivered by faith through Christ if you have trusted Christ. You are delivered from death by the blood of the Lamb of God. Just as God miraculously delivered the people of Israel from their oppressors, you have been miraculously delivered from the dominion of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Just as the people were rescued from slavery through the waters of the Red Sea, you've been rescued from slavery to sin through the symbolic waters of baptism. Just as the people of Israel were lovingly, powerfully escorted step by step through the wilderness, so you now are daily escorted step by step through trial and temptation and sorrow. Just as God gave every day bread from heaven, so you are to pray every day, give us this day our daily bread. And just as the people were finally led after years in the wilderness to the promised land, so God will lead His sons and daughters to the new heaven and the new earth. Their redemption is a shadow of your redemption. Their journey is a shadow of your journey. So when Christ weaves together a story about Israel's rebellion, you need to think very carefully about the decisions you are making, about the time and money and affections you've invested. God is jealous for His image bearers. You see, Israel had a choice. Seek joy in created things or seek joy in Creator. Pursue peace in stuff, in possessions, in thrills, in people. Or pursue peace in reconciliation with God. Invest God's resources in temporary satisfaction, in temporary possessions, in temporary relationships. Or invest God's resources so that God would be famous. So that God's fame would be championed and so that God's image would be bright. Upon what do you set your heart's affections? God is jealous for your heart. Give to God the things that are God's. What occupies your thoughts? God is jealous for your mind. Give to God the things that are God's. How do you spend, your re- how do you spend His resources? You bear His image. You are not your own. Do you seek joy in stuff? In the perfect home or nice cars, or comic books. And I love comic books. Is that what makes you happy? Two tough questions. Can a fire that destroys your home leave you hopeless? Can a wreck that destroys your family leave you hopeless? You bear God's image. You are not your own. Give to God the things that are God's. You have a choice too, just like Israel. Every moment represents a decision. Every morning, as soon as you wake, you will choose where you are going to seek joy. You will choose with every conversation, 
With every daydream, every time you open that browser, every time you open the door to your office, every time you have to pick up your husband's underwear off the bathroom floor, every time you receive a credit card application, every time you go shopping, you will choose creation or creator. Will you seek peace through prayer, through scripture, through fellowship, through service? Or will you seek peace at the glass or at the table? Will you spend your time and money on hobbies, on subscriptions, on tickets? Or will you spend your time and your money on yourself and yourself on the church? This is the wilderness. You're not supposed to settle down here. God is jealous for His image bearers. He is jealous for your heart's affections. He is jealous for your mind's attention. He is jealous for your worship. And He is sought after you, after your heart incessantly. Your life is riddled with His messengers. You have been given opportunity after opportunity to turn to Him for joy. Will you turn? How many sermons have you sat through? How many times have you heard the gospel? I'm talking to believers too. How many people have asked you difficult questions? It's time to seek Christ for joy. Redeemer Church, it's time to seek Christ for joy. It's time to turn away from created things. Christ is the source of all hope, of all joy, of all peace. Give to God the things that are God's. So you must consider, reconsider how you live. The consequences of this passage, of God's jealousy for His stewards, of His possession, also means that you must change the way you think about human life. God is jealous for His image bearers. That which bears God's image belongs to God. It has been fashioned for His purposes. It has been knit together for His glory That which bears God's image is not ours to stifle. We are not permitted to wipe away human life. God proclaims over His creation, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in His image. God's image signifies His possession, His purposes. We cannot, we cannot agree with our culture that human life is subject to human choice. We may not shed the blood of man. We are not permitted. Our life is not ours to take. The life of another is not ours to take. So let's talk for a moment about abortion. Scripture is absolute in its, in its I'm sorry. Scripture is absolute in its condemnation of abortion. There's no room for interpretation. Life begins at conception, and we know this because the unborn fetus of John the Baptist leapt for joy, full of the Holy Spirit, when the unborn fetus of our Savior Jesus entered the room. We know this because God said that He knew us, that He loved us before He knit us together carefully, fearfully, wonderfully in our mother's room womb. God hates abortion. When the people of Israel were cast out of the promised land, 
when God could not bear to look upon their sin any longer, at the emotional pinnacle of the expression of God's wrath, the author of Kings cries out, and they burned their sons and daughters. And while our culture may not sacrifice their children at the altar of Moloch, millions upon millions of young lives have been slaughtered to the gods of convenience, of family planning, of fiscal aspirations. May God move in our nation to wipe away the horror of abortion. May God move in the hearts of broken men and women to turn away from murder and to run to Christ for hope and joy. And life. Our generation's Holocaust is conveniently accessible in the ghettos and suburbs surrounding every major city in the United States. We must pray and fast and plead with God for His merciful movement in the hearts of Supreme Court judges to overturn Roe v. Wade. How should we, as believers, respond to abortion? I can think of four ways. Actually, I could think of three ways, and Brett could think of one way, uh, in addition to the three ways. (laughs) First, if you've had an abortion, there is grace in Christ. Like the dew on the grass, His mercy is new every morning. As our brother Brett reminds us, the worst thing that could ever be said about you was said on the cross. If you are in Christ, you are redeemed He has traded you sin for righteousness. Remember, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of, of God before their eyes. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing. No one. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Do not despair. His love is greater than your sin. He redeems. He restores. He renews. Second, believers must consider adoption. Adopt from impossible situations. A child born into an impossible situation represents the opportunity to champion the brilliance, the significance, the inestimable worth of the image of God. Adoption is a brilliant, explicit portrait of the gospel. 
You and I, if we have turned to Christ as our only hope, we have been adopted as sons. You were born into sin and death. We have been adopted into life and righteousness. We were born without inheritance. We are now heirs with Christ of all things. We had no hope until we were adopted into the family of God. You want to preach the gospel to your family, to your friends, to your church, to your community, every day of your life? Adopt. Nothing screams gospel like adoption. It is a visible, ever-present picture of rescue. It is a picture of hope for the hopeless. It is a picture of the condescension, rescue, and restoration. When you adopt, you actively proclaim that God's purposes are greater than man's purposes. You actively proclaim that God's image is worth preserving. And as you struggle to understand this child, to bear with this child's sin, to give love and not wrath, to exert every effort to see this child grow into the image of Christ, you are picturing the merciful, lovely work of God in sanctification. Your discipline is a picture of the Father's loving discipline. Your mercy is a picture of the Father's mercy. The Sanks family is a picture of the gospel. As Meg and Michael patiently, lovingly discipline, as they teach, as they provide, they are painting a portrait of your father who sought you and rescued you, who who disciplines you in love and who who will joyfully escort you into brilliant inheritance. The Brumley family is a picture of the gospel. Watch them chase Oliver around the sanctuary, the fellowship hall, the education building, the courtyard. That's a picture of your father who sought you and saved you, who will chase your rebellious heart and form it into the image of Christ. Third, believers must become active citizens. God, in his grace and for his purposes, has set us in a democracy. We are given the privilege to vote. If every Christian in America voted, abortion would be illegal. This is a fact of the matter. The court case which legalized abortions on a federal level, Roe v. Wade, was ultimately decided in the Supreme Court. It may be overturned by the Supreme Court justices at any time. It is the privilege of the executive office to elect, with congressional approval, Supreme Court justices. That means that your vote for president is directly related to Roe v. Wade. That means that your vote for House and Senate representatives is directly related to Roe v. Wade. Your vote is your voice in our government. As soon as you begin to research candidates for the House, for the Senate, for the office of the President, it may become painfully clear that very few in our government cherish Christ above all things. Listen, this this is going to sound crazy, but I need you to take me seriously. If you seek a candidate for office that cherishes Christ and will vote accordingly, and you cannot find one, you should consider running for office. I know that seems crazy, And politics seems like a world for the super rich. But listen, our government was engineered so that a normal guy could sit in Congress. It is because too many believers think running for office is impossible that we don't have enough believers in Congress. And write your congressman. Snail mail or email. Write them. The more letters they receive, the more they will fear that if they do not change course, they will not have a job in two years. Nobody takes the time to write a letter and then forgets to vote. They know that too. So write. 
Write your House representative. Write your senator. Preach the gospel to them. There's only two ways that Congress will be filled with Christ followers. Believers will run for office or they will preach the gospel. Fourth, advocacy. Every day, women and men face pregnancy in impossible situations alone. Find them and come alongside them with the gospel. Remind them of the striking significance of the image of God. Remind them of the hope that is to be found in Christ. Escort them to gospel-centered resources. To do this, you will have to be involved with your community. You have to volunteer your time. You may have to meet people, to love people, to spend a lot of time with people who are not like you. Many in our body are already doing this. And it's a tangible manifestation of the grace and love of Jesus to people who may have never encountered Him. If you want a place to volunteer your time as advocate for terrified mothers and fathers, talk to Dale after the service today. He can direct you to places to volunteer. So look, it means something to be an image bearer. Image bearers belong to God. They are His stewards. Image bearers were created for God-glorifying purposes. Their lives have Christ-exalted meaning. Knowing this should radically change how you think about people. Think about the coin. God's image is on that man. That man is God's. God has, exa- God has created that man for God-glorifying purposes. God has, woven t- God has woven together that woman for Christ-exalting purposes. How can racism stand in the face of God's image? God's image is cast like a rainbow across the earth on the faces of men and women from every culture. How can prejudice stand in the face of God's image? God has fashioned that good old boy for Christ-exalting purposes. God has fashioned that Yankee for Christ-exalting purposes. How can you stand passive while image bearers starve? God has woven together that orphan, that widow, for Christ-exalting purposes. They are His possession and we are His stewards. We take care of the orphan and the widow because the Master has left us to steward His possessions. May God impress the significance of His image upon our hearts this afternoon, this week, this year, this decade. May God radically reorient how we think about people. May God stir Redeemer families to consider and pursue adoption. May God stir our members to devote themselves to actively resisting abortion. May God eliminate racism, prejudice, and neglect from our body. And may God challenge us to reconsider how we spend our time, our money, and our affections.